Radio. Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Glenn Bolas on the topic, The Eucharist. This March 2008 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday evening apologetics lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Mr. Glenn Bolas is a student and teacher of English, a budding apologist and also a convert from the Baptist Church. I'm going to start with the psalm. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O God, you are my God, for you I long, for you my soul is thirsting. My body pines for you like a dry, weary land without water. So I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. For your love is better than life. My lips will speak your praise. So I will bless you all my life. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul shall be filled as with a banquet. My mouth shall praise you with joy. On my bed I remember you. On you I muse through the night. For you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings I rejoice. My soul clings to you. Your right hand holds me fast. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, the story goes that uh, in the early days of the Reformation, uh, while many of the battle lines were still being drawn, uh, Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli agreed to meet together with many of their followers in Marburg, in Germany, in order to sort out their differences and present a united front against the Catholics. The conference went on for several days, until the agenda reached the subject of the Eucharist. At this point, things began to unravel. Put simply, Luther clung stubbornly to the doctrine of the real presence. Zwingli opposed it on principle. No headway could be made, arguments were flung back and forth, tempers got out of control, and the whole conference imploded as Luther, red in the face, stood and slamming his fist repeatedly on the table, shouted over and over again, This is my body. This is my body. This is my body. Any hope of an alliance between the followers of Luther and the followers of Zwingli came to an end that day, as did all possibility of a single Protestant church. Now, obviously, we have many differences with Luther, and those can hardly be overstated. But one thing this incident demonstrates, something that Luther, of all people, you might say, uh, realized only too well, the doctrine of Christ's presence in the Blessed Sacrament is not negotiable, and it's worth defending. Indeed, this can be said for the entirety of the Church's Eucharistic doctrine. Now, uh, I've been asked tonight to uh, give a primarily apologetic uh, talk on the Blessed Sacrament. Uh, so, in doing so, I'd like to begin with what Luther left out. Uh, in particular, because it's something that a lot of us tend to leave out. Uh, certainly, it's not something on the Catholic spiritual radar, as a rule, uh, nor even for those of us who are aware of its doctrinal importance, is it necessarily something that uh, uh, greatly affects our uh, personal piety um, or our indeed our participation in Mass. I'm speaking of the Eucharist as sacrifice. Now, it's ironic that the sacrificial nature of the Blessed Sacrament doesn't loom larger in the collective Catholic imagination. It is, after all, uh, one of the things our, our brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, who are not full members of the Church, uh, find most offensive. Luther, of course, uh, would not accept that the Mass is a sacrifice. I thought the idea was quite blasphemous. Uh, alone of the Protestant reformers, he held on to the doctrine of the real presence, uh, but he just could not accept that uh, the Eucharist or uh, the Mass was uh, sacrificial in any way. Uh, turning to a more recent opponent of the Church, I um, heard a while ago uh, of an interview in which Peter Jensen 
uh, was being asked about some refurbishments being done to St Andrew's Cathedral at the time. And uh, included among these was the shifting of the altar. And when he was asked about this, uh, Peter Jensen interrupted the interviewer and said, there is no altar in this church. Altars are for sacrifice, and we don't offer sacrifice. I wonder how many Catholics who heard that uh, interview actually realized that uh, that was directed uh, against them. Anyway, um, in a way, the fact that uh, most of us don't pay that much attention to the sacrificial nature of the Eucharist is not entirely surprising. Uh, after all, we don't live in a culture that uh, practices or even really understands uh, sacrifice. Even in the most basic sense, uh, our culture is formed more around the idea of indulgence uh, than sacrifice. And the concept of giving something up willingly and freely, uh, and moreover without the expectation of getting something uh, back in return, is uh, very counterintuitive and countercultural uh, in the uh, uh, cultural atmosphere in which we uh, uh, which we inhabit. Uh, but more than that, we don't have any direct experience of religions that uh, regularly slaughter animals as part of their worship. Uh, there are very few paganisms left, uh, and the more widely followed ones generally don't sacrifice. Uh, at least, not as far as I'm aware. Uh, certainly, the Hindus don't sacrifice animals. Um, I'm not sure if they ever did, actually. Um, and Hinduism is the only major pagan religion left in the world, and there are lots of minor ones. Uh, that's the uh, only major one, really. Uh, it's followed by masses of people. Um, even the neo-pagans, uh, Wiccans and so on, uh, don't generally go in for sacrifice. Uh, I've known a couple of Wiccans in my time, and uh, they were far more into incantations and environmentalism than into sacrificing goats and, and uh, cows and things of that nature. Um, besides which, most Wiccans are vegetarians anyway. Uh, of course, this wasn't always the case. Uh, if we'd been members of the early church, uh, living with uh, the uh, old Roman and Greek paganism all around us, our experience would have been quite different. Uh, those Christians knew sacrifice. They saw the people filing up to the temples. An altar for them was not just a different sort of table. Things died on altars. Altars had blood caked on them. Sacrifice, in its fundamental sense, means giving something up. In the common experience of humanity, however, uh, it's almost invariably meant death. The death of an animal, and maybe even death of a human being. Uh, when I was growing up in the Baptist church, when we came to communion, uh, the Lord's Supper, uh, yeah, those were the things we called it generally, uh, one of the um, texts that invariably got quoted uh, was a text from Hebrews. Uh, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. And uh, it's interesting uh, that uh, mankind seems to have intuited that truth almost from the beginning. Well, from the beginning, in fact. I mean, we have it in the biblical records, you know, right from um, Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. As soon as they come out from the garden, you know, there's sacrifices going on. Um, and uh, looking back into you know, the ancient world, ancient history and so on, uh, all of the great pagan religions have sacrifices as uh, an essential component of their worship. Some more than others. Um, the Egyptians didn't have it quite so much as uh, most of them. But nonetheless, all of them had uh, some, uh, some form of uh, you know, killing of something, an animal or whatever, and uh, you know, uh, blood and entrails and, and eating the meat of it and all this kind of thing that goes along with the sacrificial system. So, um, and indeed, uh, in God's revelation to mankind through the Jews, uh, this remains the same. Um, in that too, you know, like in all of the paganisms, there was a, a lot of death going on. 
Uh, if you have a look at the numbers of the animals sacrificed uh, when the temple was first dedicated by Solomon in Jerusalem, uh, it's uh, recorded in 1 Kings chapter 8, and uh, it says that uh, there were 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep sacrificed as part of uh, that whole thing, and that, that went on for uh, seven days. So it was uh, very involved. Um, I don't know if uh, any of you have um, uh, been brought up in the country at all. Um, I haven't myself, but um, my grandfather um, grew up in the country and uh, they did slaughtering of animals. It's a very involved process, apparently. And it's, uh, it's a lot to be done. It takes a long time and there's a lot of uh, blood and entrails and it's all quite messy. Uh, so these sorts of numbers, 22,000 cattle, 120,000 sheep, I mean, that's, that's a lot of carcasses at the end of the day. And that's, uh, that's a very involved way to worship. Uh, and the place would have stunk after seven days, which, incidentally, is uh, where the Jewish use of incense comes from. Uh, they used it to, uh, to hide the stench, and, of course, we have inherited uh, that use of incense, albeit for a slightly different purpose. Um, the basic point of sacrifice, of course, is to destroy or to uh, place beyond one's uh, reach or use uh, something of great value. Uh, in an agricultural society, uh, that meant livestock. Livestock were of huge value, um, hence animal sacrifices. Uh, in some pagan societies, of course, uh, the Carthaginian, uh, the Canaanite, uh, the Aztecs uh, as well, uh, human life was the thing of greatest value, and uh, hence human sacrifice was considered the greatest of all sacrifices. Uh, this, of course, was an error and an abomination, and we recognize it rightly as such. Uh, but nonetheless, these societies were onto something. And just by the by, something that occurred to me, it's a curious fact, that uh, in those societies, humans were sacrificed because human life was seen uh, as something of great value. In our society, uh, babies are sacrificed in the womb because human life is seen of, uh, as of little to no value. Um, the same goes with you know, the whole debate with euthanasia and yet the result is the same you know, people end up dying so and I, I find that uh, interesting but anyway, that's by the by um, now here's a, a concept Christianity begins with a human sacrifice uh, that sounds just a little shocking uh, but, uh, well, indeed we've just uh, come from celebrating uh, that uh, last Friday, uh, a week ago, in fact. Um, and perhaps it didn't occur to us to think of it in those terms, but in fact, uh, that is what we were celebrating. It uh, actually is a human sacrifice. Uh, but it's more than that as well, uh, because Jesus Christ is true God and true man. And the sacrifice we offer, therefore, is also a divine sacrifice. Uh, God is being sacrificed. God who is of infinite value. Now this is a great mystery to speak of the sacrifice of God. It's a, a truth and an event, uh, the manifold depths of which we can never entirely plumb. Let us turn therefore our eyes just for a moment uh, upon this truth, uh, upon the cross and uh, contemplate the wonder of it and what it, uh, what it means. God himself, impassable, uh, uh, not able to suffer, has united himself to a human nature, a nature which can experience suffering. At the cross, we see the greatest crime ever committed. Man killing God. We see the God who had commanded all these sacrifices of the Jews, assuming the role of one of those beasts he commanded to be offered as an oblation and allowing himself to be slaughtered. We see God taking on the role of a criminal being executed. We see God suffering under and accepting into himself the evils 
of the world, epitomized in the very crime being perpetrated against him, the killing of God himself. We see God dying, and then in the utterly shattering reality immortalized for us in the image of the Pieta, we see God dead. On Holy Saturday, for a few brief hours, Nietzsche was right. God was dead. Just like the animals on the altar. Just like any executed criminal. Just like all men ultimately are. God was dead, and we had killed him. And yet, from the ashes, from despair, Sunday dawns. The brightest morning that ever did break, and the great turn came. Jesus Christ is alive. He is alive now. God has conquered death from the inside. For mankind's darkest hour comes a light more brilliant than the noonday sun, more brilliant even than burning magnesium. From his greatest and most despicable crime comes the undoing of every evil he has ever committed. Within himself, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, holds the cure for all wrongs, past, present, and future. Indeed, he himself is that cure. He has been born up from the grave. He has passed through death to the other side, where no man has been before. Buried once, he has burst through, dazzling with a light no human eye has beheld, nor even known to hope for. The Mass is a sacrifice with a difference. It is the sacrifice of Calvary. And that means death, which leads to life. Despair turned into sure hope. Evil bent and twisted until it has become redemption. But the cross and the empty tomb are not things you can just sit and look at as a passive spectator. Like the... Uh, uh, in physics, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle says that everything you observe is affected by that observation. Well, the same thing holds true here. Just contemplating these things, the cross, the empty tomb, this sacrifice that God has effected for us, involves us. The Easter mysteries that we're celebrating this week make demands upon us. And anyone who comes in contact with them the early Christians understood this, as indeed did the entire ancient world. For them, the sacrifices you participated in meant something. They weren't just rituals, which you did. Somehow your selfhood was involved in what happened on the altar. Back then, for the Catholic, you sacrifice to Caesar, you repudiate the Christian faith. You disown the name of Jesus Christ. On the other hand, you offer the sacrifice of the Mass, and you would repudiate Caesar, for there can be only one king of the world. Two sacrifices were available to you in those days. Only one could you take. Those who offered sacrifice to Caesar were apostates, and if they wanted to come back to the faith, they would have to do years of penance, maybe decades would pass, before they could taste the flesh of Christ again. Those who refused to offer sacrifice to Caesar would be imprisoned and possibly executed, especially if they were clergy. There were no half-measures. It was one or the other. Nor indeed are there any half-measures now. The sacrifice wasn't just something that you watched. For the pagans, how it generally worked was this. 
Animal sacrifices were generally burnt, and the cooked meat that resulted given to the priests and laity participating in the sacrifice. In cities with a big temple, the excess meat might have to be sold in the marketplace, just to get rid of it, because there was quite a lot. And St. Paul has uh, some forceful words to say about what Christians should do if they suspect the meat they're buying has been offered in a sacrifice at some point. Uh, you can check that out in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, eating the meat, of course, was how you participated in the sacrifice. By partaking of the meat, you were making the sacrifice of the priests your own, and you were demonstrating your own allegiance to the God for who, uh, to whom the sacrifice was being offered. And this was also true of uh, a number of the Jewish sacrifices uh, which were done, particularly the, uh, the burnt offering, uh, which incorporated a lot of the other sacrifices. Uh, but burnt offering was the uh, uh, main one that was done at the temple. Um, uh, in addition, the, uh, the Passover, uh, which I want to um, concentrate on a bit. Um, in the Passover, uh, every Jewish family uh, sacrificed a lamb uh, without blemish or spots or stain, um, broken limbs, anything like that. It had to be a perfect lamb. And uh, they sacrificed it and then ate it as a family meal. And uh, that was the way that the family participated in that sacrifice. Uh, in the original Passover, of course, they uh, placed the blood on the doors. And uh, St. Augustine has some interesting things to say about the symbolism of that. Uh, but we won't go there just now. Uh, very interesting nonetheless. But um, anyway, in eating the meal, uh, it was a very uh, family thing. Uh, in eating it, that was, uh, that was how you participated in the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. Uh, that was how you uh, appropriated the, uh, the benefits of the, uh, the sacrifice. Uh, in the original Passover, the blood was sprinkled on the, um, the doorposts and you, know, uh, you did the whole thing. That was how you, you know, avoided the um, um, uh, plague on the firstborn. So if you didn't do that, then you know, there was a problem. Uh, but uh, in doing that, in participating in that sacrifice, the angel of death uh, passed over the Jews that was in the original Passover. In every Passover uh, thereafter, uh, the same uh, acts, the same uh, thing is uh, recapitulated, as it were. Uh, now, it would be a strange thing if God had enacted our redemption sacrificially in Jesus Christ, as the New Testament declares over and over that he did, and then to leave mankind with no way of participating in that sacrifice. From John the Baptist, with his cry on the banks of the Jordan, of, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, from that point on, there was a sacrificial undertone uh, to Jesus' ministry. And when he was killed on the very day of Passover, well, the connection is just too obvious to be ignored. And the, evan uh, the evangelists didn't ignore it. Uh, indeed, St. John constructs his entire passion narrative around the rubrics um, that were uh, used for the um, preparation and the slaughtering of the Passover lamb. Uh, for example, uh, I can't remember chapter and verse, but uh, in his passion narrative, when they're um, uh, condemning Christ uh, and he's being led to, uh, uh, to Calvary, uh, John happens to mention that uh, this took place at the sixth hour, which doesn't seem particularly relevant uh, to us, uh, it just seems, you know, uh, by the by observation. Uh, but uh, it was the sixth hour when the, uh, the lamb was uh, killed. So uh, John is reading a whole host of um, significances uh, into what's going on uh, with Christ. It would have had massive resonance uh, for the Jews who were uh, reading that, um, that passion narrative and they, they would have been able to see all the connections that John was, was making uh, so what did one generally do with the Passover lamb after it had been slaughtered well the revelation of God to Moses is quite clear you eat it that's it uh, that's how you participate in the Passover sacrifice 
But in Calvary, and in the empty tomb, we have something greater than the Passover, of which the exodus from Egypt was uh, merely a foreshadowing. We celebrate the exodus from sin and death, the beginning of a journey that will end not in an earthly promised land, but in the promised land of heaven, in the very presence of God after the resurrection of the dead. So when the disciples think back and remember that the one whom John the Baptist called the Lamb of God, during the Passover meal, gave them bread and said, This is my body, which, is, uh, which will be broken for you. Do this in memory of me. And is then killed on what, by the Jewish reckoning, was the very same day. The nature of how man is to participate in the unique sacrifice of Christ begins to become clear. Just like the Jews then, our mode of participation in the unique and salvific sacrifice on Calvary is to eat the sacrificial lamb, to eat the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. And this is what we call Mass. Now this may seem like a roundabout way of saying it, but I hope you're beginning to see how vital an aspect of the Eucharist, its nature as a sacrifice is, and especially how inextricable from everything else that we believe about it. In the end, Luther's belief in the real presence and his simultaneous rejection of the Mass as a sacrifice don't make sense. These things are fundamentally and organically connected to each other. You can't have the one without the other. Uh, and in a way to try to take the one and leave the other uh, misses the whole point uh, and indeed the fundamental nature uh, of the Blessed Sacrament and of the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary um, and indeed of, of redemption really um, and of how we uh, appropriate uh, the redemption one for us. We have but to look to the Old Testament scriptures to see prophesied in the covenant given by God to Moses the basis for our belief in the sacrifice of the Mass. It's not a new idea, it's not something that kind of developed over uh, centuries of you know, uh, uh, questions and, and additions uh, to our faith you know, through the Dark Ages or something like this. Uh, the idea of the Mass as sacrifice flows organically from uh, the sacrifices of the Old Covenant. It's, you know, it's, um, it's quite clear that it's uh, just a fulfilment of everything that's come before. And so to try to separate belief in the real presence um, from the idea of mass and sacrifice, it, it just doesn't work. It's to try to divide what simply cannot be divided. Now a couple of other matters to consider in this connection. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross was different from all the sacrifices before it, uh, both the Passover and all the Jewish sacrifices, and for that matter all the pagan ones as well, uh, which at least in some sense um, uh, could in intuit um, you know, something about uh, redemption and how redemption works, even if they got a lot of things wrong. Um, and the, the difference is this, that uh, it was unique. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross was unique. It could only happen once. Um, it can't be repeated. In the letter to the Hebrews, uh, we read that Christ did not suffer repeatedly from the foundation of the world. Instead, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The sacrifice of Calvary could only happen once. But then, in a kind of counterpoint to that, we have in the Revelation of John this mysterious phrase, speaking of Christ as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, if Christ did not suffer repeatedly from the foundation of the world, as we read in the scriptures in Hebrews, 
Uh, and yet, he can be spoken of as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world in the Revelation, in, in the same scriptures. How are we to understand this? How does this make sense? Well, here we enter into the mystery of our salvation. God has effected our redemption through the sacrifice of himself in history, at a particular time, and in a particular place. What was offered in that sacrifice was God made man. And God is infinite, and man is finite. God is eternal, man is bound in time. The impenetrability of this reality, how those can both be true, and how that, um, how that affects the nature of the sacrifice that God made as man in Christ. Um, it's, it's a paradox which can, it confounds us. You know, we can't get our heads around it. Uh, yet, there is a sense in which, uh, a real sense, in which the sacrifice of Calvary is both confined to a particular historical moment and at the same time is an eternal reality that transcends time. And scripture bears witness to both of those realities, or, or rather those, those two aspects of the, the one reality. Now this solves a, a practical problem, among other things. Uh, the clear witness of God's commands in the Old Covenant indicates that the way you participate in the Passover sacrifice is that you eat the sacrifice. Okay, uh, this is, we, we've gone over this just now. Now this was no problem when each year you could sacrifice a different lamb. But how could multiple generations of people over successive years participate in a sacrifice that was unique and could not be repeated? Because, because the sacrifice of Calvary is an eternal reality that transcends time, through the Christian priesthood and the celebration of the Mass, God has set up for us a way of entering into the reality of that sacrifice made once for all, and participating in it by eating our sacrificial lamb, who is Christ Jesus. So every time that we gather for Mass, and the words of consecration are spoken by the priest, that eternal, once for all, unique sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross is made present once more. It's not repeated. Note that. Uh, it's tricky talking about these things because they're realities that we can barely get our minds around and uh, it's, uh, it's very difficult in, uh, with our finite minds and our finite language to try to express the, uh, the full uh, reality of them. Uh, so we need to be careful so as not to misrepresent them. Uh, the sacrifice of Calvary, the sacrifice of the Mass, they're the same thing, uh, is made present again. It's represented every Mass. It's not repeated. Uh, it's not offered a second time. Uh, there isn't another sacrifice. It's the same sacrifice. And it, it's, it, it's like, um, well, what changes uh, is not the sacrifice itself, it's us. You know, every Mass, um, the, the reality that we are participating in is, is the same uh, every time. What changes is not it, but us. Um, you know, I don't know how better to express it than that. Uh, now, you may meet Christians uh, who oppose the Church's teaching on the grounds that there is one unique once for all sacrifice, and they'll quote Hebrews uh, to back this up, uh, which we've looked at already. Um, and I'll say that there is no other sacrifice, nor can the sacrifice of Christ be repeated. Well, guess what? They're right. And we can agree with them. This is nice. Um, this is not actually a point of difference uh, between our, our different theologies. Uh, all Christians, as, as far as I'm aware, uh, well, all all ones who acknowledge you know, uh, the sacrifice of Christ um, are in agreement on this point. Uh, and the Catholic Church teaches the same. Indeed, we have more reason to believe in the uniqueness of Christ's sacrifice because the Church holds the two aspects of it that we've looked at, uh, its concrete historical nature and its transcendent eternal nature uh, in a perfect balance. 
holding both to be equally true, and observing them both in the way in which we worship in the Mass. Uh, indeed, these two aspects of the cross complement each other. Uh, if someone, uh, well, after all, how can you repeat something that's eternal? Uh, it's by its nature unrepeatable. Uh, so if someone asks you how you can believe that the church offers sacrifice, uh, or you're accused of re-sacrificing Christ, uh, you know, when we're confronted with that, uh, that accusation, uh, what we have to realize is that the accusation comes fundamentally uh, not from a difference of doctrine, uh, but from a misunderstanding of the church's teaching and practice. Now, of course, uh, there is a difference in doctrine, um, but the knee-jerk reaction of most non-Catholic Christians uh, is not the, that difference in doctrine. Uh, there is one sacrifice, it cannot be repeated, we agree on that. Uh, how we appropriate that sacrifice to ourselves um, in the Mass, well, therein lies the difference. You know, uh, we believe that, well, all that we've just summarised, um, whereas they, they don't. Um, they don't understand the sacrifice in that sense. That's where the difference lies. Um, but uh, the accusation that, well, you re-sacrifice Christ, well, no, we don't. No, and we don't believe that we do. So we can agree with them on that, uh, which, as I say, is nice. Um, now, I hope that uh, all of this uh, that we've um, uh, been talking about uh, demonstrates how inextricable uh, the sacrificial nature of the Blessed Sacrament is uh, from the doctrine of the real presence. Uh, you can't uh, separate them. They, um, they're organically connected to each other. I think that uh, oftentimes, uh, and this, well, this isn't just in regards to the Eucharist, but in regards to uh, a lot of the Church's teaching, we have kind of uh, disembodied doctrines floating about in our heads. And uh, we believe them. We believe all of them. Um, but uh, they're not always uh, kind of connected to each other. We don't see how they all fit together uh, in, uh, uh, yeah, in one whole, uh, necessarily. And so it's, uh, it's worth uh, seeing that connection, seeing how uh, they actually all fit together, and uh, you can't uh, have one, you know, one without the other, and, and so forth. It's, uh, it's, it's all a seamless road. Um, I think Augustine says something along those lines. Anyway, um, so any attempts to, uh, to divide uh, the Church's Eucharistic teaching or to uh, cut pieces off it, uh, such attempts uh, diminish not only the thing as a whole, um, not only you know, uh, one's understanding of the Eucharist and of the sacrifice of Christ, um, but even the, uh, the bits one decides to keep are diminished. Uh, and we see that uh, with, uh, with Luther. Um, he, he, even though he, he managed to retain a sacramental sense, uh, which is something that we should be uh, thankful for, incidentally, um, there's such a, a, a huge loss, uh, even in you know, uh, his, uh, his belief and his understanding of the real presence, even though he hung on to that, um, rejecting the nature of the Eucharist of sacrifice, it, it diminishes um, everything about the Eucharist. So, yeah, okay. Um, now I want to say a, a few words about the real presence as well. We'll kind of move on to that uh, organically. Uh, so we've spoken a fair bit about sacrifice. Um, I think that's uh, appropriate uh, because a, it's something that um, especially um, Catholics tend to neglect uh, a lot these days, which is a, a shame. Um, and even when we don't, it's not something that kind of informs our spirituality necessarily. Um, and, yeah, uh, as I say, it's, it's a seamless whole. We need all of that. So, anyway, moving on. Um, disagreements about the Eucharist affect everything. Uh, the whole of Christian doctrine. Uh, and particularly when it comes to belief or disbelief about the real presence, um, we, we can see this uh, you know, at work. Uh, because when we talk about the real presence, we're talking about what the Eucharist is in, in its essence. Uh, Protestant worship services are different from the Mass 
not because they have different beliefs about justification or the saints or you know, things like that. They're different because they have different beliefs about the Eucharist. Um, and, uh, well, interesting anecdote in this connection. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, Lord of the Rings fame, uh, suggested once in a letter to his son that uh, the Reformation was fundamentally not about justification, but about the Eucharist. And justification and faith and grace and all these things were largely red herrings to uh, try to distract from Satan's main uh, attack uh, on faith. And uh, it's an interesting idea. Um, and I have to say, speaking for myself, that the more you look into the history of the Reformation, uh, the more you begin to think, well, maybe that's right. Maybe there's something to that. Because you notice, for example, in the wars of religion, um, in the, the lowlands and in Germany, where all, the, uh, all of these things happened, when the Calvinists or Huguenots or whatever they called themselves, they went by different names but believed the same thing, uh, conquered a, a town or a city, first thing they did, every single time, first thing, uh, was not to distribute leaflets or give out Bibles or to start you know, scripture studies or you know, anything like that. first thing they did was abolish the Mass. Every time. And that's, that's significant, I think. So, anyway, uh, some practical apologetics uh, in this connection. Now, for the Protestant, uh, I speak from experience here, uh, the fundamental sticking point uh, in regards to the doctrine of the real presence uh, can be summed up quite simply. Do this in memory of me. Uh, now, the fact that that's a, script, a scripture quote is incidental. It's not the idea that they have about the Eucharist, about the real presence, and about the nature of it as a memorial is not based on scripture. Um, scripture is called to bear witness to that belief. It's not the basis for it. Uh, this is, I mean, this is how we work with scripture as a rule, as Catholics as well. Where we don't, you know, generally quote proof texts, um, but we're used to thinking that Protestants do. Well, it's not always the case, uh, and this is uh, this is one instance of that. Uh, now, the concept of a memorial, uh, like we have a, for example, a war memorial. Uh, this is the most basic thing that stands in the way of Protestants believing in the real presence. Uh, this concept of the Eucharist being uh, simply a, a memory aid, uh, like a, a photograph or something, uh, a way of solemnly recalling Christ's sacrifice, uh, an aid to meditation and prayer. Uh, the habit of mind which thinks of the Eucharist in these terms is very, very strong. Uh, it, it's very strong. And it's, uh, I mean, really, it's not particularly uh, reprehensible or repugnant on the face of it, you know, such as it is. Um, to go to a war memorial, you know, to pause in front of the, the plaques and... Um, uh, all this kind of thing to uh, recall uh, the sacrifice that was made by these men who went to war, um, who you know gave up um, in many cases, you know, their families, their livelihoods, their lives um, for our sake, for the sake of you know this country and for our freedom and so forth. And to you know walk around the war memorial, thinking about these things and meditating upon them. I mean, th this is um, um, a salutary thing to do. Uh, there's nothing in itself, wrong with this. Uh, it's, it, it's a wholesome thing to do. However, if you were in the process of doing this uh, at um, a war memorial somewhere, and uh, I was there as well, and I came up to you and I said, uh, the sacrifice of these men is made present here. And you probably nod and agree, yes, yes it is. Imagine then that I persisted and I said, no, 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 I mean, the sacrifice of these men is really present here. Uh, what? Uh, if I persisted um, and um, suggested to you that the men who had died in the wars for their country uh, were somehow actually present and walking around in some sense, 
in the war memorial, um, in this place and no other, uh, and that you could actually meet them, and maybe even, I don't know, maybe even converse with them. Um, at that point, uh, you would probably give me a funny look, uh, draw some unflattering conclusions about my mental well-being, and uh, look around for a way to gracefully end the conversation. Now this is exactly the kind of reaction that most Protestants have when confronted with the idea of the real presence. Uh, they, they may not say as much, but this is, this is the kind of reaction that is going on in their minds and hearts. Uh, it seems weird, uh, kooky, uh, and thoroughly unnecessary. Uh, the Lord's Supper makes sense without it, uh, just as it is possible to find plenty of salutary meaning in the war memorial without believing that you're actually able to meet dead soldiers there. Now, I want to emphasize that the problems your average evangelical, well, as I said before, the problems the average evangelical has with the real presence are not actually fundamentally based on scripture. Endlessly quoting John chapter 6 to them is not going to help anybody, uh, certainly in most cases. Uh, the objection goes deeper. Now, it's necessary to realize that because, as I say, you know, uh, when you're talking with a Protestant about these things, inevitably scripture is going to be quoted. Uh, and so, you know, we tend to think, well, okay, I've got to argue with the texts. No, you don't. The texts are not, uh, they're, they're not the proof, they're not the basis for the belief. It goes deeper. Uh, now, this I say, this concept of a memorial, uh, this is the number one difficulty for Protestants. Uh, it outranks everything else. This, this is the primary barrier uh, that exists in their minds. Uh, everything else comes after that. Now, I recall uh, when I was beginning to become convinced about the, uh, the truth of the Church's teaching about the real presence, uh, it was not because of a biblical passage, uh, but rather because of the incongruous fact that uh, I discovered that the early church had a different idea about the Eucharist from what I did. And uh, that led me to question some of my own presuppositions and assumptions. But even after I did become convinced of the truth of the real presence, even after I believed it myself, for the longest time, uh, and this seems very strange to me now, uh, but for the longest time I still couldn't see it in John chapter 6, or for that matter uh, in most places in scripture. Uh, I, I couldn't see it there. I mean, this, this is amazing. Uh, certainly it seems amazing to me now. I mean, you know, eat my flesh and drink my blood or you have no life in you. I mean, can you get any clearer? But there it is. Um, for some reason I couldn't see it, even after I began to believe it myself. Uh, I don't know how widespread uh, that uh, experience is for uh, converts from Protestantism, but uh, certainly uh, it was mine, and, well, there you go for what it's worth. So, now, don't mishear me and think that I'm saying that the real presence isn't in Scripture, that it's something we kind of impose upon the text or uh, bring to it. Um, it is in Scripture. Uh, in fact, it's in there a lot. Uh, but the thing is uh, that we read Scripture through a certain interpretational lens. Uh, in the Catholic Church, of course, we call that lens tradition, uh, or sacred tradition, rather. And uh, that lens affects how we read Scripture. And it affects it a lot more than we uh, probably realize. Now, of course, the Catholic Church's claim is that it has inherited not only the scriptures themselves, but uh, also the lens through which we read them from the apostles. Now that's a big claim, uh, not one we should take for granted when, people, uh, with, when we're talking with people who don't assume it. Uh, now, getting back to that one primary barrier uh, in the mind of uh, your average gun variety evangelical, uh, the remedy for this concept of the Eucharist as simply uh, memory aid, uh, like the War Memorial or like a, like a photograph or something of that nature, 
um, is to realize a couple of things. First of all, it's um, you need to realize, and they need to uh, uh, somehow have communicated to them. Um, this way of viewing the sacrament is a very, uh, well, it's a peculiarly modern way of seeing it. Um, we live in a, a culture which, um, how to put it, it's uh, inhabited with films and photographs and, and uh, these, these are the sorts of things that we use to kind of uh, understand the past and um, uh, experience it. Uh, but these are, these are all very uh, modern things. Uh, the Jews didn't see the Passover this way. Uh, if we were to do a Passover Seder ourselves, uh, more likely we would do it that way. You know, we'd see it as a kind of a, a memory aid. Uh, but th- this isn't how the Jews understood or indeed understand now um, how you, uh, what, what Passover is all about. Um, or how how you um, how it communicates the past to the present. It's it, it was not so much looking back from the present to the past, or kind of transporting yourself you know, in your mind from the present to the past, uh, as the Passover is a, an act of taking the past and bringing it into the present. Uh, it was less a remembrance, uh, not even really a reenactment uh, as such, uh, but rather a participation uh, in those formative events of the Jewish nation and of God's dealings with them. This was the kind of memorial that the Jews celebrated in Passover. Now, when Christ, during the Passover Seder, says, do this in memory of me, this is the kind of memory that he has in mind, a participation in the events that he is describing, to wit, uh, the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood on the cross. Now, this, this is what we believe. Uh, more importantly, from an apologetic perspective, uh, this is the kind of memory or the kind of memorial that the apostles who heard him say that would have understood him to mean. Uh, and this is how they taught later Christians to understand it. Uh, indeed, St. Paul says as much in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a participation in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread we break a participation in the body of Christ? Something else we need to be mindful of as well uh, when we speak of the Blessed Sacrament uh, is its scandalousness. Now, we can, well, we can even take it for granted, which is a dangerous and uh, um, very unfortunate thing to do, uh, given its nature. But uh, we, we can um, also become comfortable uh, with, uh, with our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. Uh, I mean, we go to Mass every week, uh, some of this more often, and uh, you know, we join the communion line, we go up, we receive our Lord, we come back down, we pray for a while, and, and there you go, and we do this you know, week in, week out, and um, you know, we can become comfortable with the reality of it, uh, with receiving uh, our Lord into ourselves, which is a, a very awesome reality uh, if we stop to think about it. Um, but yeah, it it, uh, it can become not dull, but um, how to put it? Well, as I say, we become comfortable with it. We get used to it. Um, we get used to having our Lord being there, um, you know, in a concrete way. So we need to remind ourselves that this is a, a scandalous thing. Um, not, a, not obviously in the very specific moral sense uh, that you know, ethicists would use you know, as scandal, but uh, it's something shocking. Uh, there, there is a certain shock value to the concept of 
eating somebody's flesh and, and drinking their blood. And this isn't something necessarily that we should shy away from. Uh, and Christ's teachings have always been scandalous. And this one, uh, well, this one's been the most scandalous, uh, most scandalous of all. Uh, if you doubt that, we'll go back and read John chapter 6 again. Uh, so, especially when uh, people, family, workmates, you know, friends, or so forth, uh, if they actually click that we really believe this, and we really believe that we are eating Christ's actual flesh and drinking his actual blood, not metaphorically, but really, uh, they will be scandalized by this idea. Uh, it, it is a, a shocking idea, and that's true of Protestants, it's true of non-Christians, um, and I, uh, I should say it's uh, very true, uh, given the times in which we live, of uh, a substantial percentage of Catholics, uh, more's the pity, but, uh, but there it is. Now, the main locus of the scandal, if we stop to think about it for a moment, um, finds itself in the accusation levelled against the first Christians by the pagans, and they accuse them of being cannibals. And one can see why. Uh, cannibals eat human flesh. And the Catholic Church teaches that, that the Eucharist is human flesh, uh, even though it looks like bread, and uh, it commands us to eat it. Well, in fact, we're not cannibals. So we can breathe easy. Um, and here's why. Cannibals eat dead flesh. Uh, it's generally cooked, granted, uh, but uh, whichever way you look at it, uh, the food of cannibals is flesh from a human corpse. The food of Catholics, however, our food, is a living person, and we receive him, body and soul, into our bodies every time we go up for communion. The doctrine of concomitance uh, teaches us that when we receive communion, we're receiving Christ in his entirety. Not just portions of him, so he, you know, cut off, you know, part of an arm or something like that, but his fullness, you know, the whole Christ. Um, that includes his body, that includes his soul. Um, and this flesh and blood of which we partake has life coursing through it, it's not dead. You know, Christ is risen. Uh, and the life that we find and that we receive, uh, through the sacrament, this is a supernatural life. This is a life full of grace and love. This is the life of Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Particularly as we continue to celebrate Eastertide, and in fact we haven't even finished the octave yet, so we're just getting started. Uh, at this time it's uh, salutary to recall what Paul teaches us in Romans. Uh, namely that Christ has died once for all and therefore death has no more power over him. Christ is alive now and will never die again. In him death is conquered. The flesh and blood we partake of in communion are resurrected flesh and blood, deathless. There is immortality in that which we eat and drink. Indeed, St. Ignatius of Antioch, the great second century martyr, referred to the Blessed Sacrament as the medicine of immortality. In other words, by participating uh, and partaking of Christ's flesh and blood, uh, and in doing so, participating in the sacrifice of Calvary, we are being inoculated, as it were, against death, both the death of sin, the death that eats away and destroys the soul, and also the death of the body, which all mankind must face sooner or later. The Eucharist is the foretaste of resurrection and of the righteousness that we shall enjoy in Jesus Christ at the end of all things. This is what we believe. These are the things that the church teaches us. And if they're true, if they really are true, 
then these are truths that are worth defending. You've been listening to a Lumen Verum apologetics lecture by Glenn Bolas. For more Lumen Verum apologetics lectures, visit cradio.org.au.